Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I am excited. It's been a while. I've got one of my buddies back on here, Tim Russell. Tim, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so, Tim, it's been a while. I mean, I've seen you recently, but it's been a while since you've been on the podcast. And uh, we need uh, we need a forester's background here, and I think it's important to kind of take your perspective on things. I like the way that you view kind of the landscape, and uh, I think... I think we all have different perspectives, either you know education, general experience, and I think it's good to kind of get into the details of this topic, which is going to be focused right around how to buy land from a forester's mind. And you know, you're a hunter, so let's not put that aside. We're going to talk about that in the conversation, but we're going to talk about timber. We're probably going to talk about land diversity. You know, spreading out kind of you know the different types of vegetation we prefer in the landscape, your preferences. So I want you to kind of kick it off. If those don't remember you, you've been on prior episodes. We've done a lot on managing the timber for deer, et cetera. Um, but why don't you just get back into yourself in case somebody explain a little bit about you before uh, we get into this detail. Sure. So um, I'm a forestry consultant and I'm an SAF certified forester. I offer a range of services to landowners in New York. Um, management plan development. I mark timber for sale and put it out to bid. Um, oftentimes I'll cruise a woodlot, meaning I'll go out and take uh, some forest measurements to determine what's out there in terms of species composition and structure and all that. But often with the timber cruise, we're looking at how much timber is out there of a particular species and volume um, in order to determine what the timber value is. And uh, that's something that's often done before somebody sells land or buys land. Um, apart from that, I do some forestry herbicide application um, and, you know, other other related services, uh, dirt forestry basically offered to uh, all sorts of landowners in New York. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and a, lot of, a lot of background, you do a, a whole host of different things. Um, let, let's get into detail. So, you know, let's let's put ourselves in the mindset of a buyer. You're in the market. And or, or maybe you're you have you have land and you're assessing your land for quality and quantity and you're thinking more specifically about, you know, what what the land provides to you. Right. The land is a resource. Um, it's not always just for hunting. There's income potential. There's a lot of things to look at and there's a lot of decisions to make and there's criteria that we typically want to go through. So from a forester's mindset, what do you start with? So, uh, for one, I always start with the uh, 
with the client. You know, I, I'm not really in the land business so much as the people business. So certainly I want to find out what that person values in terms of aesthetics, um, hunting, what species they want to hunt. Uh, and if they have some interest in, in timber, um, and thinking about cruising a woodlot, you know, as we call it, sometimes I'm headed out there to determine how much wood is on a piece of property in terms of timber, what, what the volume is like, what the value is like based on species and quality. Um, and then also, sort of what potential is there, what what problems might exist, right? Is there erosion? Are there trails that are washed out? Are there trails at all? Um, but in looking at timber value, you can have a stand that, like, let's say, is older and maybe not in great condition, that the timber value ends up being similar to a younger stand uh, that's got just smaller trees on it, right? Um, but that has a lot more potential to grow into something more valuable, even though it might have a comparable value to uh, a very different uh, forest stand out there. Let's slow down and let's talk a little bit assessing value. We look at site indexes and we look more specifically on, you know, trying to qualify and quantify the volume of trees in the landscape and their potential value. Now, until you cut a tree, you don't actually know likely what it's going <clears> to <throat> what economies it's going to gain but from the standpoint of just cruising and thinking about this like more specifically you know what what are something a landowner can do like what, what's a simple you know uh, layman's approach to looking at you know trees tree value that that type of thing and volume maybe, maybe there's there's something that you can do there uh i guess i would caution landowners or prospective landowners from making too many inferences on a personal basis about what the timber might be worth out there without involving a forester. You're right that the value of an individual tree can't really be determined just by looking at the outside of it because once you start cutting into it, you've got more information, right? Does it have defect inside, that sort of thing? Um, But um, what we do with a, a timber cruise is to scale not every tree in the forest, right, but take a sample so that we can do some statistical analysis as far as Uh, how much volume is out there on average and you know from what we can tell looking at the outside of the tree looking for defects things like that and then using current stumpage values that you know in new york a good resource is uh dec publishes stumpage price reports to tell you what timber prices are looking like on average they do it about twice a twice a year um, and they give you a kind of a, a price range by different species. So, you know, that that's one thing that landowners might look at um, is the DEC stumpage price report. But other than that, it is a little bit of a niche skill set to be able to go out and accurately scale either an individual tree or, or to be able to go out and actually conduct a cruise and come back with some reasonably accurate uh, um, timber volumes on which those, those stumpage prices can be applied. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do that without having the experience and, and knowledge and skill set to kind of apply it. But you could break the forest stand down into subcomponents, and then from that, you know, you could get a rough estimate of volume. You know, there's some we've talked about that previously in other podcasts is just kind of assessing the volume and quality, right? And again, like we said, you got to cut the tree to know what its quality is, and then knowing the market, right? And your local markets are going to be all you know, kind of based on the economies, you know, where people are shipping things to, right? There's a lot of, I guess, international opportunities with certain timber, et cetera. All right, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about maybe site index. 
considerations and evaluating that. I know that's left field. We, we haven't hit on this before, but, you know, there's an aspect of, of kind of sun and soil in that equation. How do you measure productivity indexes? Are there things that people can look at? I mean, pe- people may not know what that actually means. So I want to kind of get your take on, you know, assessing, thinking in the future, right? We're, we're thinking today, this is what I have currently. You know, we can have a desired outcome of improving that, um, but we also are kind of fixed somewhat on the geology and the type of species that are present. And we could change the forest types as well. So, you know, I'm kind of wondering your perspective on that, just at a high level. Sure. Well, just to touch on site index, because that, that phrase came up, site index is basically about seeing how tall a tree of a particular species will grow over some period of time. So it, it is specific to a tree species. And to some degree, you might even say, break it up more finely than, than tree species and say provenance, because from the same tree species that covers a wild, a wide geographical range, you might have uh, a tree from one place that has different, you know, growth habits, that sort of thing, than a tree from another place. Site index usually involves taking the height of the tree and knowing how long it's uh, been growing for, and then using that to determine how good is this growing site for that particular species of tree. Um, Another good resource that I use in terms of determining site quality is web soil survey. (laughs) Foresters love it. I think uh, some wildlife biologists love it too, because you can log in online, look at your property, you know, zoom in and get a map of your property uh, from NRCS that shows you what the soil map is for for your area. So you can determine, um, are you looking at well-drained soil, somewhat poorly drained soil, what's a typical profile look like, depth to restrictive features like fragipan or, or bedrock or something like that. Um, and that that's a really valuable resource, not only for foresters, but I would definitely recommend using web soil survey if you're trying to decide where to put some food plots. Um, let's, let's jump ahead a little bit and let's think about, you know, somebody's buying a particular property or they want to buy a particular property. And they're looking at it beyond the timber. And we can get back to the timber if you want to talk about more things along those lines. But they, they're they going down the road of, I want a hunting property. Now, the element of this that I would consider as a landowner is, yeah, but is there potential? Is there timber potential on that that I need to preserve thinking ahead, right? Because that resource, you know, economically will help me maybe pay for taxes or improvements, could be an offset to some of my expenses. And I want to lay that into the equation. So Tim, from your perspective, you know, buying land, how do you approach this topic where hunting is paramount, right? But timber is an aspect of it. You know, it's, it may be in a, a valued, you know, and I would say maybe not as much as hunting, but it's still important. How would you kind of look at the forest in that, in that setting? Sure. Well, in in that case, and really in any case, I try to do as much as I can from my office using GIS and looking at maps because nowadays there's a lot available. We've got recent aerial photographs. We've got old aerial photographs that might show us some things that the recent aerial photograph can't and realize like, hey, this all looks like the same type of forest on the recent aerial photograph, but I looked at the old one and I can tell, hey, that area is a lot older than this area. And I, I've got soil maps, right? Topographic maps, many different things I can lean on there. I can't tell everything that I'm going to need to know from the office. Uh, I typically want to put boots on the ground, but um, in looking at a, a hunting property, uh, just looking at the map, 
is it all wooded? Is it all field? Does it have some of both? If it has some of both, is it broken into large blocks or are there many smaller blocks that are sort of interspersed that that can be advantages? Are there brushy areas? Um, you know, basically anything that I can determine. Sometimes I like to play a game where, of course, I've got to put boots on the ground and I know I'm going to, but I try and make guesses about what I'm going to find when I get out there. Um, and I get a little bit better with it at time, you know, over time, <laughs> as far as saying, <laughs> what's, am I going to find older woods, younger woods, big timber? Am I going to find oak? Am I going to find maple? And, you know, I, I don't always get it right, but, uh, it, it kind of makes it fun and it, it kind of sharpens my ability to determine some things from the office. Uh, you could tell a lot about how a property lays. So this is more th- This is also something you have to look at more when you get out on the property, but, you know, access, is it very narrow access getting onto or off of the property, looking at the topography, can you guess maybe how the deer would move across the landscape? Um, And just like with timber management, if you're going to actually manage the property, you want to look at access in terms of your ability to get equipment on and off the property. Sometimes you've got road frontage and then you've got a wide creek or a wetland or something like that and very narrow access getting back into the property. But also thinking about access in terms of how you're going to hunt that property. And if you say, hey, I I could tell this is how the deer are going to move across the land and this is where I'm going to want to place a hunting stand. Are you going to be able to make it to that hunting stand without spreading scent through the areas where you expect deer or upwind of the areas where you expect deer? So um, you can find out quite a lot uh, by just taking a look at things on a map. But, uh, you know, of course you want to be able to get out there on the property in the end and and see what's out there. Yeah. And a lot lot of information you just provided there. And I think it does start with a map, you know, alternatively, you know, there's, there's advent of drones and, you know, you can, you know, look at your property through drone imagery or to get real time data. I would recommend a lot of people consider that. Um, that allow you to kind of look at that interspersion kind of layout that Tim was talking about a few minutes ago. You brought up an interesting point in that um, in that in that remark related to the interspersion of different vegetation types and balancing that. We've talked before about breaking, you know, management areas up on your property and then you know identifying a purpose and then you know kind of serving that purpose with kind of managing the vegetation. I mean, you take you know mature forest and and turn it into shrubland. You know, it's very hard to take a mature forest and turn it in a wetland area, especially when it's in a terrestrial site. But there's elements of change. And, you know, the, the disturbance that we're talking about just, just briefly is, is really important. The other piece you brought up is, is you know, terrain and kind of understanding how the terrain involves, you know, certain species or certain animals, how they transverse the landscape. And, you know, when I go to a property, I generally know where the bedding is going to be just looking at a map. And now... Once you get there, you know, things change, right? You look at the composition and how it's been managed, right? It's land usage. And, you know, you get really detailed and specific. Then you then you get even more specific when you start to design it. The other aspect of this is diversity, is having an element of, you know, we, we're talking, you know, mature, you know, younger forest. We've, you and I have talked about younger forest on this podcast, shrubland, field settings, kind of that herbaceous layer, kind of that, that tiered kind of looked across the property and massaging it so it kind of lays out in, in different elements and in different management zones and, and thinking kind of, you know, in some semblance and organization of that. And 
I think about this kind of in <clears throat> layers. Everything is in layers. And in those layers, I want a lot of diversity. So each management zone is going to have its own kind of diversity across it. And it's going to be preferential to the soil type and, and what species would prefer to kind of grow in those areas. And and I think looking at the landscape, Tim, your little game that you play in your head, which is, is kind of funny because I do something similar, like what's going to show up here, right? And then from that, trying to make some decisions on how to best approach you know, the issue or topic you brought up erosion earlier, you know, those are all really kind of important things to look at. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go down the road. The next piece of this is, you know, the income aspect of this. And I know that's important for some people. One thing to consider is we spend a lot of money on land, right? So what's your budget? And then thinking your annual costs, whether it's your taxes or maybe it's, you know, recreational things Uh, in this case it's you know what's your disposable income for improving it for deer hunting right and so are there offsets or things that we can do how how important is that way in your equation of buying land and you know having i guess we'll say this resource that's leveraged and how much percentage would you say on most deer hunting properties would you want to be a mature forest that that's somewhat managed or you know up we'll say we'll say Forest in a status of either harvest or future harvest, just to be a little bit more specific. What would you like? What would you like from a percentage standpoint? Well, I guess I don't have a typical percentage, but I guess it. I would say that it should be fairly balanced. It's pretty often that I work with somebody who bought a rural property for hunting, and that it's like upwards of ninety percent forest. Uh, and as you touched on, that could be advantageous in some cases where you've got timber, which might help pay for the bills. Um, but many times that's not the case. It could be, you know, a site that wasn't great or a stand that has good potential, but it's just too young. It's not time to harvest. It could be that it was cut over in the past or has had issues with insects or diseases that the timber value might just not be there to carry a whole lot of work. Um, and so this, this doesn't necessarily sound like what a forester might say. If I had my choice to manage a property for deer specifically, and I could either go with entirely field or entirely forest, I would go with entirely field because <laughs> most of what we're trying to give to deer is within, you know, five or six feet of the ground. Right. And even if you've got a forest, that's got some timber value, but now you've got a huge percentage of your property that is mature forest, you know, in terms of, you know, thinning is nice and you can get some understory vegetation doing some clear cuts can, you know, as a regeneration method can certainly be nice and create a lot of woody forage there. But if you want to give deer more of what they, of what they need, um, like just thinking in terms of food plots, herbaceous growth, if you wanted to go and try and convert a portion of forest on a largely forested property to something else, there might be timber value there, but even in a case where you've got really nice timber value, once you start thinking about not only cutting the trees, but cutting all the trees, including the ones of no value, having them removed from the site, pulling out roots, rock raking, liming, fertilizing, right? It, you know, the, the cost of trying to convert forest to field could quickly eat up the revenues from timber where spending a little bit more maybe and making sure that you've got an even, even balance with field is, is a lot more a lot more valuable. And, and in many cases, it's a blank slate when people say, Hey, what it's, <laughs> you know, there, there's either the circumstances where things are like, you know, covered in, in beach and there's no timber value and you don't know what to advise people because it's going to be an expensive intervention. And then fields are like the other side of the spectrum where 
it's almost, you know, it could be a little bit harder to give people a direct answer as far as like, what should I do? Because if you've got a good growing site and it's field, like it's kind of a blank slate and your, your mind's going in so many different directions. You could do food plots, you could do native warm season grasses, you could be planting trees, you could be planting shrubs, you could be putting in so many different things. So um, I don't, I don't have an exact percentage. I guess if I'm going to spitball one, I'd say, you know, a quarter to a third at a minimum being field would be, would be nice. And if it's more than that, then, um, no trouble with that either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's funny because it's totally opposite of your professional, (laughs) uh, your area of focus. So, but, but that's very true. And that's, that's very objective in your, your point of view. So I think everyone should listen to that. You know, I think one of the things I always start with is soil and the value of soil. And if I'm going to buy a property, I'm going to look at that number one, right? What's the quality of soil across the landscape? And what's the diversity of that soil? You know, the type of soil over the range. <coughs> Excuse me. The next thing I'm going to look at is terrain features and variation in topography. I'm going to take my property, for example. All right. My property was about 95% wooded. Okay. Great soils, a lot of diversity in terrain features, but generally north sloping. I would value that property very, very low because of the North Slope. And so it's thinking about these like criteria and, and maybe coming up with a, either a flow chart or, you know, just a table and sitting. And, and I have I have this because I've done this with clients is looking at a property and, and putting value across this and then coming up with a computation of, you know, this property is better than that property. And you brought up the point earlier about access, right? That's that's really critical to that. Just Absolutely. Land, land use access is huge. And then thinking about the historical usage of that land, like the point you brought up earlier of fields, like, well, I'd rather have that field in a state where, you know, maybe it was previously agriculture and it's, you know, it's 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. And you you have this, this site that has a lot of likely you know, young pioneer trees, there's diversity in soil. So you just, you get a lot of range of vertical diversity. And the other aspect of this that I think is really, really critical is, is you're just looking at, you know, what your climate is like, you know, in the Midwest, they deal with drought a lot, right? And then in the Northeast, we do not have those issues in, in most instances, right? So I don't have like a limitation in water. It may be my growing season shorter, Right. And so as a result of that, you know, I'm limited to what plants I can grow and I have to really work really, really hard to manage those plants in a short window of time. So there may be more work on the landscape. But I was in a situation recently with a client where, you know, it was a 50 year old, you know, abandoned agricultural property. I mean, there were sections of the agriculture. It was a complete mess. It's in a high traffic area. So as a result of that, Tim, there was a ton of invasive plants so we had to go in there with a mulcher we're doing a reset on the property using a mulcher it's the only way to get in there to reset the property and you know after 10 days of using a mulcher you know we're finally at the point where it's navigable right the the deer usage was like an all-time low so if it's not managed over time and it goes from a field setting into a young forest or you know maybe middle-aged forest you may be dealing with complexities that make, you know, I guess, I guess the property a little more difficult to, to manage. And so it's thinking through each one of these and evaluating how much time and effort you're willing to put into that. I don't know if that echoes with you, but you know, that's a problem. Absolutely. 
and and one point on that in terms of budgeting, right? You're thinking about how much you have to spend on the land and and the upkeep costs, but also the money you might have to to put into improvement and your, how much time are you going to put in? What equipment's available? It's it's better to get that 50 acre property that's got the diversity and that has the potential and still have some budget left over to improve that property than it is to push the limits of your land buying budget because you want to get more acreage, right? And have a hundred acre woods that you can't do much improvement on, or, you know, that the deer are running right through because you don't have much of an understory, uh, you know, in terms of looking at the property uh, for the potential for a successful hunt, better to go smaller and, and a little bit better or a little bit more potential and have a little bit more money left in your budget. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And and the other piece of this is dealing with, you know, a lot of my clients are either building a cabin on the, on the property. So it's thinking about, you know, those locations, uh, any land restrictions too. I dealt recently with a land restriction issue with a client, uh, wetlands. That's a good example. You know, something to consider if you have wetlands and the limitations, right? Depending on how it's tiered, you know, what can you do in those areas? You know, type, sure. type of plants, um, you know, just, just a, a, a bunch of different considerations. The, the other thing I want to touch on real quick, Tim, and I don't know if, you know, so I, I call it warm and hot spots and cold spots. So we talked a little bit about terrain and thinking about, you know, kind of the solar aspect of this, right? How, do, how does the sun hit the landscape, right? And then thinking about how deer are going to benefit from that, right? There's a direct correlation to, you know, the sun hitting the ground and producing food, warming the ground, warming the animals, and these warm, cold spots, and having more warm spots than cold spots. I just brought up the north slope thing on my property, right? So there's a window of usage that's high, and then eventually, later in the season, it goes down. Now, you know, there could be a a bunch of different things you'd have to look at at a macro level and look at the general slope of the properties in those areas and how they're facing, et cetera, but you know, a property that has warmer side hills or slopes, you know, whether it's west facing or southwest facing, et cetera, that diversity in terrain is really, really important. I'm not saying you can't have a, a few north facing slopes on your property, you know, and, and there isn't a benefit to that. There absolutely is, especially during certain times of year. Um, the deer utilize those at certain times of the day and certain times of year seasonally. And, and, and that's critical to think about when you're laying out a property. But I want a lot more warmer sites than than cooler sites i don't don't know that's something you've thought about when when you're kind of looking at that's something i think about commonly in relation to like forestry and how the plants are going to grow because we talk so much about shade tolerance when there are species we want to grow or we don't want to grow how heavily we cut our forest might have to do with how much shade or how much light we're trying to get to reach the ground so you know that definitely relates really well and as you touched on you want to think about aspect but other things that, of course, are going to affect that are like your latitude, the time of year. If you've got an opening that you're cutting, what is the shape of the opening, right? Like you might get more sunlight to the ground in a circular opening than a long rectangular one. Um, thinking about the heights of surrounding trees if you're, if you're doing an opening and also what types of trees, right? There are some species that are going to offer a lot of thermal cover and, and ones that won't. So that, uh, you know, we think about that in terms of growing trees, but uh, the same concept applies in terms of uh, creating or, you know, having warm spots, cold spots on the property as it relates to deer. Yeah, I like, I like to think of it really simple like that. Water sources. What do you think about having a water source on the property? Good, bad. 
Uh, I'd say good and maybe not bad if you don't have one. Uh, so I haven't dealt with installing water sources specifically myself. And for the most part, as far as meeting their biological requirements, your deer will probably be fine if you don't have a water source on the property. Um, that said, it can be good to have one. There's, there's some evidence out there that large bucks will drink water after eating a lot and before bedding down. And so that might just be one component that makes them uh, more likely to hang out on the property. But, uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't myself, uh, dealt with installing any, I'd kind of like to get into it. You know, I, I see a few folks out there and in some cases it's the only choice because of the drainage of the soil. I, I guess it's popular to kind of put a tank into the ground and, in many places in New York, because of our agricultural history where forest was cleared away and tilled, we've lost a lot of the hummocks and hollows that used to put what we call vernal pools all across the landscape. You know, these little, these small little wetlands that you might find in the understory of the forest. So uh, it would be kind of neat to see more of those being restored. I know there have been some projects like that out there. And then you also get all sorts of other wildlife that maybe get to use that a little bit more than a stock tank that's been buried to ground level. Yeah, I'm not big on stock tanks at all. Um, and I, I guess, you know, Ship, Todd Chippy and I, we had our debate, I think, on this podcast about to water tank or not to water tank. And uh, you know, in our climate where I am specifically, it's a little bit different, right? So, you know, I think you have to think about, you know, how much rainfall, precipitation on the landscape, what's your climate like, where to place those, why, et cetera. If you have existing water sources on the landscape, how do you amplify those for utilization? Um, there's certain things you can do in stream management zones to increase interest. We've talked about a little bit about that. I think I talked previously, uh, thinking about the water table and your, your you know, your food plots relationship to the water table. There's processes to irrigate, um, how to create more water, water infiltration on the landscape. We talked about swales and ditches, and we talked about the issue of erosion. Again, thinking about that all in context and then being very kind of pragmatic with, you know, what your opportunity is and, and how much effort's required. Like if you have ponds, you know, we, we talked about this Perry Batten um, about, you know, they, they, they had to do some irrigation this year. They had big water tanks. They you know, just dropping tons of water because they had, they had drought. Like, how could you drought proof your property? There's certain ways to drought proof the properties in some capacity, right? You know, that's that's the lifeblood of the, the plant life is, is water, right? So without water, you know, this whole this whole land use thing and the decertification or the landscape out west of how they got these just you know i guess soils that are just disappearing because they don't have any you know they don't have any plant life because you know they're struggling to keep i think of montana is a good example you know they're struggling to keep water in the landscape and then they, they don't get the water volume that we we do so you know we're very very fortunate our growing seasons are short in the northeast but the water you know benefit that we have is really really good and and i don't worry about that as much in, in my region um, so I, I just kind of wanted to add to, to that a little bit. I'm yeah, gonna... it hasn't hasn't really been a problem as far as what I've run into in New York. And I guess I would add, you know, of course, plants need water too. But if it comes down to it, deer can get a lot of the water they need from the food they eat yeah. potentially. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's going to increase. I mean, there's another piece of this is capillary action. So capillary action is really important, right? Thinking about the water table and the landscape and how that relates to 
you know, the plant life that's adjacent or in the same area, right? The benefits of the water going up and down and infiltrating in the soil and then the plant taking that water or having that water available to it. Plants are likely going to be more fruitful to the animals, you know, that are utilizing those areas. So it's, it's thinking a little bit more depthly about just the whole ecology and kind of layout and landscape aspect of this. I want to get into one other topic with you and assessing vegetation. So I don't know if you do this with your clients, but I'm starting to do this a little bit more is taking an area and saying, okay, this is good or bad, or maybe actually putting a value to it and say, what's, you know, good, better, best kind of thing. Do you go on the landscape and say, okay, for this management zone where we're doing, well, we'll just say timber stand improvement. You know, this is an area where you want to do timber stand improvement. And, and here's why, you know, this, this may, may have a small food component value to it. Do, do you do anything li- like that where you walk them through kind of an evaluation? Sure. And, you know, sometimes we do this roughly if it's more like going out for one day with a landowner and looking for some practical things that that landowner can do over the course of some weekends. Um, but in developing a land management plan, uh, an important step is delineating the property into separate management units like forest stands or like fields that are different enough from those other areas to be considered separately, but homogenous enough within themselves to be managed as a unit and to apply a treatment with some degree of, of uniformity um, and each treatment having a desired outcome, right? How are we going to change this area? But uh, things that, you know, I'm looking up, if it's in the woods, I'm looking up in the overstory and seeing what's there in terms of tree species and size and quality and all that. But I'm also looking down and saying, is the understory bare? Does the understory have things that I want to grow? Does the understory have things that we don't want on the property? And how is that going to be affected by whether it's, you know, cutting or, or some other type of treatment? How's that going to change? Which it's just as important to avoid some unintended consequences as it is to, you know, implement something with a desired change. And for landowners looking to go at it on their own and and do some things on the property that are going to be an improvement without either wasting time or creating more problems, one of the best things to do if you're not very good at identifying plants or knowing what's out there is to get out there with a field guide and see if you can figure out what are you looking at, right? Instead of accidentally releasing some invasives or doing something that's potentially counterproductive. So I'm going to, I'm going to walk down this road really quick. And I like two things that you brought up, the homogeneity of a particular area, particularly if you're managing for timber and segregating that separately from all these other, I guess we'll say microclimates, you know, based on all the other things we considered, then I'm going to take a field, for example, and I'm going to apply, apply this. So I have a field setting where I'm walking in and it's, it's goldenrod, right? And we, we see this very commonly across the landscape where it's just, this monolithic crop, it takes over everything and it, it becomes valued only at certain times. It becomes a great cover source, but its food source degrades over time. There's not a lot of diversity in there, right? And, and you're thinking about that as, okay, it's an old field, right? Maybe it used to be agriculture. Uh, it's no longer, you know, in that set, you know, its utilization has changed. And as a result of it, what's its value, right? So, and my buddies kill me on, on this topic because they go crazy over these the ginormous golden round fields. We, <laughs> we used to, do a lot yep. of, we used to do a lot of deer drives, you know, and, they're and, out there. <laughs> and, and, and then there's not a shrubby component. There's, there's not a young forest component, but it's actually drilling down a little bit further. And you just hit on this topic is looking at the species specifically, like, for example, you know, you're going to see this more in you know, kind of forested stands, but 
pokeweed is an example, right? If you clear cut an area, like in our areas, yep. we get a ton of pokeweed. I've been on properties. You know, that's a high value plant, produces a lot of seed. Uh, it's great for birds. They distribute it across the landscape. It proliferates an area pretty easily. In the old fields, asters, having a lot of various asters, excuse me, that, you know, provide food value over time. Again, another good perforator, you know, birds utilize them. Thinking about wild lettuce, blackberry, right? We think about these blackberry briar bushes and having those in, uh, they're typically segmented. I, I can think of um, an area where I was just at there, beach plum. So thinking about American plum thickets in, in the landscape, cutting those back over time, right? Cutting them in the wintertime, letting them re-sprout. And th- those are typically in pockets that provide cover and food. Partridge pea talked about how to have kind of, you know, these herbaceous plants that are viney that climb up, you know, different, different stemmy plants. Just thinking about this diversity in landscape. Okay, in each example, I'm increasing its value as I add diversity into that equation. So that old field, you know, whether you burn it, right, you disc it, uh, you just apply herbicide, you mow it. It's okay to mow, guys. And thinking about, I think mowing really from kind of a path movement standpoint, by the way, Tim, but it's just thinking about, you know, these techniques and then thinking about what results, you know, occur based on that and what plant life, you know, ends up, you know, coming, coming to light. So I I just want to throw that in here as equation is like, okay, I'm taking a a valued property one to 10. It's, it's five in the field because it's just, it's just this monocrop of, of uh, goldenrod. And now I'm converting to something more valued. And one last point to that, if you have invasive plants in those areas, trust me, they're all over the landscape. And if it's a shrub component in that field setting, it's if it's going to be replaced naturally, it's going to take five, seven, ten years. Maybe you plant something instead of that plant. and Or maybe you leave that plant and kill it. Uh, you leave the structure there and you plant things around it. That would be a good way to attack that particular issue. So I just want to try to take the equation of thinking about a particular management zone and then giving it value, improving it, right? Seeing how they utilize it more. Does, does my return on investment, do I get a return on investment based on the improvements that I'm making? And and what's what's the result of that? What type of plants am I getting in those areas? And not thinking of it just from a deer perspective, right? We're thinking it, in this case, the conversation I just had was about deer, but I did bring in birds into that equation. So, you know, just something to consider, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some very good points. And one thing that you kind of touched on there that people should be aware of is things are going to change whether you change them or not. Right. Succession happens. So you look at the earliest successional stages in a field, you might have a lot of annual weeds that are really preferential deer browse. And over time they get overtaken by perennial weeds, right? Because um, they might not move onto the site the quickest, but once they start establishing a root system, that gives them sort of a, a head start the next season. So you'll see this shift from annual weeds, which are maybe the most preferential browse toward perennial weeds. And then you start to get encroachment by shrubs and you start to get young forest. If you leave a field long enough, any of these stages of development might have value, but they all offer something different. And if you're not the one to make the change and decide what's going to be there, something's going to change with time regardless. Yeah. Yeah. And way to, way to be a little more articulate in that. I was, I was thinking that point through as I was, I was talking, um, but I, I think that's kind of an important consideration is thinking about that su- successional state where you're at, what the timeline is. It takes a little bit longer to grow, you know, certain plants in certain areas, you know, just based on your climate. And then we talked a little bit about, you know, your soil type. So thinking about that in this equation, all right, what else do you consider? Any other 
buying property guidelines, any other things that are just sitting on your, your brain that you got to get off? Well, we touched on access and, you know, when I'm walking at a property, of course, there's some that I could tell from the desk, but if there's a stream and for either management or hunting, you're going to have to cross it. I go out to those areas and see how deep, how wide, what sort of bridge would have to be there for an ATV or what sort of bridge would have to be put there for a skitter, right, to pull logs over. I like to get along the property boundaries because it can be a real pain in the butt when you get out there and there hasn't been anything marking the property lines and nothing discernible for a long time. But if you can find barbed wire and the property line was marked in the past, you know, that can really help. But in thinking about access and not just how you're going to get onto the property and how you're going to get equipment onto the property if you're going to manage it, I also think of access in terms of unwanted access to the property are there lots of trails is there a lot of road frontage and different trails that people can get onto the property are there gates that sort of thing is it going to be a a property that it's difficult to keep trespassers off of is (laughs) what i'm getting at there so i think about that too yeah and i'll bring up two last points for me The, the biggest well three points the biggest thing is what's its proximity to my home right? How long does it take me to get to this property? Because it, there's another element of this is managing and watching it over it as it relates to other people, right? Now, obviously you can have kind of, you know, remote access to your property to some degree from, you know, trail cameras, et cetera. So you can observe and, and keep note of things, but learning what your neighborhood's like is really the most important and, and trying to get that, that detail, you know, that information that gives you kind of that most recent information on what people are doing and why, you know, I've talked a little bit on the podcast about building a, a relationship with your neighbors. I've, I've talked a lot about this with my clients of how we build relationships, you know, basically strategy to market yourself. And that's really, really important. And, you know, being close, like my property is a mile from my house, right? That, that proximity is, is really ideal for me. I can drive my tractor down there. I can do, you know, when I get home from a client job, I can go work a couple hours at night. Uh, it just is very convenient. And, minimally tim you know most clients i'm saying you know a 50 acre property you're you're on there just doing maintenance work you know 15 to 20 days a year and that's you know, those are full days you know and that's that's quite a bit of work and most most times you know we're just focusing on the hunting aspect of it but to get to the hunting aspect to be more successful that that work side of it's really really important so thinking about you know the volume of time you have and and, and how much freedom you can get to do that. That's, that's the most difficult. We're, we're not all retired or independently wealthy. So, you know, it, it's trying to figure out, you know, how many weekends or nights you can get there and, and do the job you need to do. Ideally, you're living on the property. That's the ideal situation, but we, we don't all have those conveniences. Absolutely. And likewise, you might find that a good hunting property costs more the closer and closer you get to a major city for, uh, for those reasons. And, and endless supplies of money like you and I both have. That's no big deal, right? So, you know, I, I, I'm happy that I just own land in, in this economy today. You know, the prices per acre have kind of skyrocketed. And, you know, it's, 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 it's tough to see that because I'm asking myself in these areas that have, you know, you know these economies that are just, just dwindled, you know, how can you ask for that, right? The city prices seem to proliferate across the landscape, and you know, just because of this this boom, you know, it's it's been kind of a a, a difficult uh, scenario. All right, so let's uh, let's end on anything else, Tim, that you think is is relevant. Any any other topics? Any other considerations from your perspective? 
Well, don't shy away from calling a local forester or wildlife consultant to walk the land for you or if you're considering two different properties and get that impression uh, because you're about to <laughs> if you're about to spend quite a bit of money on land getting a day or two of consultation could could really be worth it. Yeah, I agree 100%. If you if you're boiled down a, a few parcels and you need to make some decisions, you know, I think it's doing your homework. You can do as much research on your own. Paying a professional will help you kind of look through it and think more specifically about, you know, what am I trying to achieve, right? What are my goals? Um, how, how am I objectifying this property where I can get the maximum return? I can maximize my hunt. You know, it's thinking through all that. And um, I think it's it's important to consider. I think we laid out quite a bit here. And if, if, if you didn't have a chance to take a pen and paper to listen to this and we didn't dialogue it and, and kind of order but there's orders uh, that I look at and and weightings and thinking more specifically about what you want what makes a good deer hunting property is um, it's in the eye of the beholder there's certain thresholds and I was trying to push Tim to, to be very specific and say okay you know if this homogeneous area how do you want to manage it for timber you know I have percentages in my head of what I look for it's just because I've seen properties that function really really well and based on that that experience alone has given me some perspective of you know what percentages of of landscape type do I want you know what habitat preferences do I have for this particular species that get the most utilization that increase my probability of success and it's thinking kind of in-depthly about what those percentages are. I won't share that on this podcast because it evolves consistently, you know, based on every property that I look at, but I do have an idea in my head. And I think for those people that have that observational experience, Tim, I feel like, you know, apply that, right? If you've seen like a big hardwood forest setting doesn't work for you, well, there's a reason why it doesn't work for you. And thinking about its value to your goals, that's really, really critical. Um, and and not shying away from maybe that's maybe not the most ideal state because these are my preferences. I want to have a successful hunt. And it's, it's again, the limiting factor in most instances, most of my properties are, I don't know, I would say at least 80% wooded. I mean, that's I, I looked at my percentage. And out of that 80% wooded, I think probably 70 to 90% of that is mature forest. Uh, and in that percentage, you know, it's, it's very difficult. We want diversity. So it's resetting, creating disturbance. It's all these things that we talked about here. So hopefully I encapsulated everything we discussed. Okay, Tim, it's been a while, man. You got a lot going on in your personal life. You got a baby coming up, so you're busy. I hope we get you back on soon. Probably it'll be after that, but I know that you're going to be busy. Anything else you want to end with? No, but uh, I look forward to being on again. It's always a good time. Hey, Thanks, and, John. Hey, Tim, real quick, we didn't mention your business. I, I want to just plug you. What? Just uh, restate your business. Greenfire Forestry and Wildlife Services. Okay. Check me out at greenfireforestry.com. Awesome. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. See ya. Yep. Bye, John. Bye. Take care. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.